Hello and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm K.W. Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. We're still healthy and still recording, and we hope this podcast brings you some happy distraction. Follow updates from CDC.gov and your state's Department of Health and seek out only accurate, science-based, and up-to-date information on the pandemic. But also, if you can, take moments for self-care and sunshine every day. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay inside, and stay positive. And today, we are delighted to bring you another discussion with author Heidi Ruby Miller, talking about her science fiction series, Ambassadora. Yes, this talk was so much fun, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. All right, we are back with science fiction author Heidi Ruby Miller. Welcome back, Heidi. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about your writing. So if you want to give us a a brief intro to the Ambassadora verse, that would be great. Sure. The Ambassadora, marked by light, that was the first book in the series, was actually my thesis novel for Seton Hill University's Writing Popular Fiction graduate program. And I worked on it even after I graduated from the program. So on and off, it took me about six years to get the first book done. But I'm super heavy into world building, which is one of apparently my key strengths, according to my reviewers, even if they don't like sometimes what some of my characters do. They do (laughs) love my world building. So that makes me very happy because for me, that is the biggest part of a, a science fiction series is what really makes science fiction science fiction. I call it space opera, but it actually has bits of science fiction romance in cyberpunk and military science fiction and anthropological science fiction all rolled into one. So I hit a lot of the subgenres of science fiction with it, but actually quite a few books that are space opera do that as well. There's even the joke that Military science fiction is really just space opera that just kind of rebranded it um, because almost all space operas tends to have like a military element to it. But it's an ensemble cast because I love ensemble cast. Big casts are just fine with me. So I tend to always write in third person because of that, because I like to be able to see everyone's POV. Mm Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, when I was writing Marked by Light in the graduate program, one of my mentors, Tobias Bacal, had said to me, you know, this book probably sounds like it's really more about David than any other character. And he was kind of a minor character, but you could tell the one that I loved the most. And the hardest part for me was Sarah, who is one of the main characters. I had her just kind of being there. She was more of an observer than anything. And I realized it was... I was looking at it more through her lens than anything, but I wasn't giving her any agency. So I had to make sure that she became someone who was someone and not just someone that we were being a voyeur through. And incidentally, I have voyeurs in my novel, which are these little balls of telescoping cameras and microphones that just fly around constantly and record everything that they see. That's not terrifying. Well, some people in the Ambassador verse find it terrifying, but most people love it because, and this was, mind you, before we had all of this stuff like with Instagram and so forth, but it's celebrity. They get to have their celebrity moments. And so they often stage things for these voyeurs so that they can get splashed up. They have screens everywhere throughout the ambassador verse on the sides of buildings and air screens that just kind of like float around so you're constantly bombarded with all of this news and 
gossip and uh, vid shows and so forth. But I completely saw that transparency was like what was going to have to be a part of the universe. And I really incorporated actually into plot points as well. Sarah in the beginning likes it, goes through a period where it is just so detrimental to everything that has happened to her. But then by another part of it, she actually feels like she has been saved because there is someone monitoring and it goes out to everyone. So it's very hard to hide anything, especially what you might do to a person to disappear them or, or something of the like. And I have these other really cool um, things, Mind Minstrels. Those are one of my absolute favorites. And the cover actually, well, the cover that's on the current edition actually shows a Mind Minstrel. And it's these little turquoise floating parallelograms that scans a person's brainwaves and picks up snippets of conversation and parts of their thoughts and then turns it into music. And it is one of those things that depending on what you're thinking and what mood you're in, it's going to be all out there for everyone. And it like makes up its own type of tempo depending on whether you are agitated or um, whether you're uh, feeling a little frisky or what have you and ends up putting out these songs. And again, some people love it and other people absolutely hate it because, you know, it's really exposure. And I carry that theme really big into the biolites that are implanted into Sarah's arm. And all the ambassadors, there's only 50 in the system, and we're going to find out why in book two, Scarred by Light. But there's only 50 of these ambassadors in the system, and they're all these beautiful young girls that most of them came from very well-to-do families and are very happy to be representatives and so forth. Sarah did come from a wealthier family, but she was not, it was not by choice that she was put into this program. But what the violets essentially do is they end up connecting. They're like a colony, and they end up connecting to the nervous system, and it allows essentially for you to see a person's emotions and it was the whole idea of I feel like I am very much a person who wears their heart on their sleeve so to speak so for me I felt like that would be the ultimate type of transparency because it's very personal however you're feeling you can see the intensity of the glow or oftentimes the pattern of the flashing of the lights and so forth I thought this is a great theme that I think I could keep going with throughout this idea of transparency and how transparent can everything be? And does it get to a point where, as Sarah finds out, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad? Uh, you know, and where do you draw the line as far as that goes? So the, the tech that I have in there plays, plays a role. All of the tech plays some type of role. Because I like flashy tech things, but if they're just there for show and they don't really matter to the, the plot line, then that's that whole idea of, well, if I pull the story out of all of this, this fanciness in this particular world, would it still hold up as science fiction? And mm. I've been very aware of that from the time that I first started to write science fiction, mainly because I wanted to make sure that I was writing good science fiction, science fiction that people who'd been reading it for generations would be like, yeah, you know, I can get behind this and I can see what's going on with it. One of the things that was probably odd was the style that I took. I have a very mm, pared down style, I guess, kind of Hemingway-esque, if I might say so myself, <laughs> that I had to actually learn to flesh, flesh out a little bit more. But 
I wanted to write to be taken seriously. And, you know, it's weird. Whenever I first started writing this, I always said things like, I wanted to write like a man so that I would be taken seriously in science fiction. And now I I hate that I felt that way. I I don't think that it is as difficult for a, a woman in science fiction anymore. You know, I started at least a decade ago and because I wanted to have quite a bit of a romantic element involved with the science fiction, I was a little bit jealous of male authors who were able to get that in there and nobody would say boo to them. But if a female put some of these scenes in there, I mean, I still have a couple of reviews by males, I'm assuming, unless they were using some type of, you know, just a different name in the review, where by the time they got to the first sex scene, had basically said the entire novel devolved into sex and that it was garbage and that science fiction romance took away what is true emotion. And I remember calling some people out on it, not on my reviews, because you never call out your reviewers. <laughs> um, but it was when I was still on Twitter, which I haven't been on Twitter in a while, because I just can't take that or Facebook anymore. But um, I remember like asking them, well, okay, well, then tell me an example of science fiction that you feel is emotionally relevant that really takes this look at pathos and so then they would give me some of that and I'd be like okay well then tell me some of the things that you read that you consider science fiction romance that didn't do that for you and they could never give me a response because they never read any mm. and that was so frustrating for me and I remember when I was first trying to get this book out there it's told by everybody well space opera is dead and I was also told by two female editors within the industry who had basically said, nobody knows you. I have so-and-so that has been writing short stories for 20 years, and I'm having a hard time getting him a book contract. And I was just like, okay, then I guess I picked something that maybe wasn't as with it, was not as modern as what I thought it was. And it turns out, though, that if you look at Amazon, space opera especially is still like one of the highest sellers within science fiction. And it's because so many people who aren't necessarily science fiction minded can also get into a lot of kind of space opera. Um, so I was glad that Dogstar Books, they were able to help me get the series where it needed to be. I actually did self-publish the first one, Marked by Light, and I was really happy with it. I was proud of the way that I presented it. And I even liked that very first cover. I had commissioned Byron Winton, who's a Pittsburgh artist, to do the cover. And it was really awesome. I still have a big signed print of it hanging in the room. And then before my second one came out, I had met John and Jennifer, John Edward Lawson and Jennifer Barnes at Raw Dog Screaming Press. And they were getting ready to do a science fiction imprint, which I ended up heading and implementing and ran it for three years. And that's where the three ambassador books that I have so far are out through them. And uh, I have book one, Marked by Light, and then I have two from the world of Ambassadora. Green Shift actually runs concurrent, well, it runs a little bit before Marked by Light. And then Starry runs concurrent with book one of Marked by Light. So I always tell people you can probably come into this at any time, until I come out with book two, Scarred by Light, because then it's going to be, that's big arc stuff at that point. And you're going to see a lot more of the characters that you saw in some of these other ones coming into play. But I liked the From the World of because 
again, I like those ensemble casts. And for <laughs> me, that was a great way to give all of what were kind of minor characters their own stories uh, within this world. Um, so that was really cool. It was very fun. And when I was doing that, I had to keep referring to the original Ambassador book. I made a novelpedia. It has all of my tech and it has all of my characters. It has all of my locations and it has the history and not just the history of what's happening in that book, but also like this is a far future society that's based essentially on our Earth society that traveled through world ships, generational world ships, which helped to set up everything within the culture itself. I'm an anthropology major for undergrad, so... One of the things I wanted to make sure that I had in there was the idea of how would words and how would concepts get corrupted over so many generations. How many words would mean one thing at one time period and then almost mean something opposite or something completely different a little time later. So I had a lot of fun with that. Every once in a while I got called on it by either critique partners or mentors or even the husband saying, I don't know if people are going to buy this. And I'm like, <laughs> but then I would be like, okay, I can understand. And, you know, I'm willing to kind of, you know, make some concessions there because in my mind, it made perfect sense. But it was, I think it was my first mentor, Tom Montalini, after I explained it to him on a phone call once said, so are you going to stand behind every reader's shoulder and tell them that explanation? <laughs> it's like, oh, that is such an excellent point. I tell that to my mentees now. I don't know if I ever told it to any of you. But... <laughs> Not that I can remember. I don't remember so. hearing that. No. See, that's good. That's good. Yeah, but I have used that before because he was so right. And I, I to this day, think about that, that, okay, it might be brilliant, but if it is something that you have to keep explaining to everyone to it, for them to understand why it's brilliant, <laughs> then you've not done your job as a writer. So that is, Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so you've got what the second full, not not a side book, but the second full book in the... In the, in the arc, yeah, in yeah. the main arc. Yeah, it's about a third of the way done right now. Okay. And so do you plan a, another book like that? Or do you want to do some more? Yeah, side there's... Books? I'm looking at three right now. I thought it was going to be four, but I think I'm going to be able to... to get the main arc finished within three books. Then I have another from the world of book about one of the minor characters, Gare Shang, because I always thought Gare was great because he is an Armaden, which in the Ambassadorverse is actually um, like the military cast, but he decides not to go into the military. Oh. Um, yeah, he becomes a scientist instead, but always has this feeling that maybe he's less than and so we get to kind of explore a little bit with Gare in a romantic entanglement with a female Arbod that did go into the military on this really very cool mission that deals with uh, water rights on one of the planets. And mm. Jason gave me the best name for it. It is called, going to be called Frostfall. Ooh, very nice. Yes, I, like I know. I like to have those one word titles for um, all of the from the mm -hmm. universe books like that's worked out really nicely for me so originally ambassador it was just going to be ambassador and i had like other names for it but then i liked the whole idea of the light series so yeah. you know the idea of marked by light scarred by light and the third book is going to be delivered by light oh okay neat i love it cool me too <laughs> so is that is that next is frost fire is that done or is that still just frost fall frost fall that's frost okay fall, sorry 
No, that one's not done yet. That one is outlined because, um, well, you both know I'm a big, big outliner. I outline like intensely to the point where we're talking, you know, like 20 page outlines. I do chapter outlines for everything. That works out really well for me, though, because then I can sit down, I can look at what's supposed to be in that chapter, and I'm Mm -hmm. like, just go on. Boom, 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 boom. So that works out nicely. So no, that one is, that's only in the outline stage right now. And then when we started doing the middle grade Hank series books, I kind of put all of the ambassador stuff to the side. I've been itching to get back to it, though, because uh, I recently did uh, a few readings online as part of the All Access Con that Dogstar Books puts on. And it was really cool because I always do this thing with readings where I just ask the audience to shout out a page number anywhere from between one and 400. And wherever it falls, I will read like the next two or three pages from there. So I never know what they're going to choose. And it's great because I would never choose these sections. Like you always try to find like the perfect selection to read and so on and so forth. But man, it is awesome because I forget about certain things. And then it makes me feel good that I can pick up those books at any part and feel proud of what is there and like feel like, oh, you could really get into a story. And I don't give anybody any context either. I just literally start. And if it ends like in the middle of a sentence, I end it right there. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. Yeah, I've seen you do that. And I like it. I, I should start doing that. That's neat. Yeah, it's fun. I like it. See, that seems scary to me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm actually finding I, I do still outline pretty heavily and I'm working on something right now, but it I got so deep into my outlining that I had to go back and reread the whole book because I was like, I know how it ends and I've already forgotten, okay, who was his minor character. And oh, that's to... <laughs> funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just because it's written down doesn't mean it's written in stone yeah. by any means either. Yeah. I like to have flexible outlines. As a matter of fact, the Hank novel... I ended up, I had three possible endings I wanted to have for it. And I didn't know which one I was going to use until I was within like a few chapters of having to write that ending. And then at that point I knew. And uh, that's good though, because I have already started that line for the second book and actually wrote like the first three chapters or so. And I was able to use some of the things that I did not get to use in the first book it's oh. going to end up being some plot points in the second book so oh, cool. that's nice mm-hmm. yeah you got to keep keep those outline files keep those little fragments keep oh, yeah. everything for sure Absolutely. yeah that's always a good feeling to be able to use stuff that you cut before <laughs> yes yep yep awesome well i was going to ask a little bit about your process you've told us yeah, you're sure. a big outliner but what's kind of your day-to-day look like and how do you juggle multiple projects huh interestingly enough I like to, if I have something nonfiction that's going on, because I have been doing a lot of magazine articles for the writer, that is good to kind of use as the creative barrier against um, what you're writing in fiction, meaning that you don't have to have the same, use the same parts of the brain in order to do both of those. But if I'm working on two fiction projects, right now it's been weird because Jason and I have been working on two different series together. So when we go for, we go for long hikes, we hike like 30 miles a week or something like that. Even like now, like with the COVID-19 and everything, we have still been able, we live near a, the largest state park in Pennsylvania, which is awesome. So we can still get out on those trails. And that's when we do all of our brainstorming and our talking and so forth. And I take voice notes, you know, while we're going through there. And 
that is another type of working on the book because then we'll write down the notes and we'll transcribe and then he'll go do his thing and then I'll go do my thing on this particular novel. And then usually at breakfast, one or both of us will have like some of what we had already worked on the day before and we'll read it to each other and kind of like get an idea for notes and so forth. And that has been a different type of process than whenever I was just working on things by myself. And I, I actually prefer having someone to work with because you know it can be kind of lonely and sometimes I would go and write like 150 pages without anyone ever seeing it because I was just kind of like so into it I kept thinking oh well I'll eventually give it to someone to look at but then I hadn't and then you start to really get nervous because you're like oh wow I'm really invested in this and if there was something that was really bad about it that I'm going to have to change you know now I have to listen to it. That's very cool. Yeah, we enjoy it. I didn't know if we would ever be able to collaborate just because our styles are actually kind of different. But I will say that when we switch off and then we switch back, we can't tell what we wrote (laughs) and what the other one wrote. And I thought that was so awesome, you know, to find that out. Now, when I just write on my own books, I have found that it is better for me to be at different stages for different projects. So if I'm writing the first draft of one book, then it's okay if I'm just kind of puttering around doing the outline that I need for another book. I have found that I don't do very well if I'm trying to write two books at once, or even if I'm trying to revise one book while writing another book, because even though revision and writing the first draft are different processes, they're still similar enough for me that I can't do a very good focus on both. I used to think I was a giant multitasker. I was like so proud of the fact. I could do like five freaking things at once, da 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 so on and so And I found out that no, I am so much better if I just kind of focus on one particular thing. And I feel like that was maturity, if I may say so on my part. I actually can I say that I remember I literally remember you telling me about my own work one thing at a time because I was having trouble. I was multitasking too much. And you're like, no. And I put it on a sticky note and put it on my computer. That's funny. Yep. Uh, well, that was because I found out myself. I found out the hard way. Yeah. And I know some people, and I even tried this, that will be like, well, in the morning I work on this project and in the afternoon I work on that project because I'm feeling different by those two time periods. But I don't know. I I get more done when I just focus on one thing. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. You're not wrong. I I can sometimes switch per day, but I kind of have to be on that one thing that whole day if mm. I'm going to be writing inter- intermittently. Um, and yeah, not really unless it's something super super different. If I've got a nonfiction right. thing and a fiction thing, or I can write a poem and I can write a story. But, right. Right. But if I'm trying to write two pieces of fiction. No, they need their own space. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carrie, do you, how do you feel? Oh, gosh. I feel like I'm at that, at that point in my career where I don't know what I like. or. <laughs> or any... <laughs> yeah, I think I try to take a Heidi approach where if I am working on two different projects, one will be in outlining, one will be in the actual writing stage. And yeah, sometimes I do switch just because like this one's not working. So I'm going to go get my creative juices flowing with this other project. I try to make it a different thing. So not two novels, like maybe a novel and a short story or something. I I found that short stories kind of help me get my brain going. 
and then I could switch back to my to my main project, which is the novel. So yeah, that's that's valid. That works. Yeah. <laughs> Every day is different, though. Yeah. <laughs> Especially now, I, we had an interview with Jessica McHugh this week, and she coined the term <laughs> quarantivity to Ooh. describe the creative juices that you get flowing being in quarantine. So, Yeah, that has happened with me because I am a worry worker. Say that five times real fast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I have been nonstop since this all started because... Man, I was heading into like this existential spiral and I was just like the only thing that was like keeping me above board is that I felt that I had purpose by writing, by having this creative outlet. So yeah, I I have written every freaking single day, except I had migraines two days. And I have been, like I said, our house is freaking spotless and like <laughs> everything because it's almost like I work and work and work and work so that by the time evening comes and that's when it all comes like crashing down the reality of this, that hopefully I can just go to bed. And then when I wake up, I'm usually pretty good as soon as I wake up. And then I remember, Oh, we're living through a pandemic. And then, you know, it's like just starts all over again. I woke up in a crappy mood this morning though. I was just like, whatever I was dreaming about, it was all about what was happening right now. And that was, though, it was a great motivator because as soon as we got finished with breakfast and we talked about our things and everything else, I immediately went to the computer and I just stayed there until I had finished this, the, the Hank book. Wow. Um, I did not think I was going to get done until like at least Saturday, but there was no stopping me. I was just like every bit of anger and frustration and everything about what was going on, I just like put it into the creativity and then writing about these little kids is just so freaking awesome because it is different than anything I've done so far. Like the Ambassador series, I'm always surprised that it's a little more violent than I remember writing it. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, every once in a while, like especially during those readings, I get to a section and I'm like, okay, I'm just warning you, <laughs> the person to pick these numbers. Yeah, I'm like always kind of surprised. It's interesting though because I wrote Ambassador, Marked by Light first, and then Green Shift, and then Starry. And by the time we get to Starry, it's not quite as violent. We do have a dismemberment in Chapter 2, but <laughs> it's totally deserved. I will warn my mother about that, because <laughs> I, just, I just gave her that book. Oh. Yes, please do. Yes, but it's totally deserved, yeah. It's a guy that did some terrible things in Green Shift that never completely got his comeuppance in... He totally does now, which is great because I think I was telling Carrie, I don't know if I would have told you too, Kathleen, or not, but at Pulp Fest one year, I got to read back-to-back chapters, one from Green Shift about this character in all of his just absolute evilness, and then the one from Story where he gets his comeuppance, and I was just like, and the audience freaking loved it. Like, yes, there was you cheering and clapping, and I was like, yeah. That felt like good. It was like cathartic just to, boom, be able to do those two chapters like that back to back. It was the first time I ever did it. And it was the theme of Pulp Fest that year was Psychos. So. Oh, sweet. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, awesome. it worked out really well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I want to say not just um, from a creative standpoint, but being in quarantine and, and the pandemic has led me to consume different types of stuff than I normally do necessarily. And space opera is actually, I mean, I always like space opera, but I've been binging Star Trek Discovery. Yes. I have only watched the first episode of that, but 
is freaking awesome. It's yes. awesome. And I, I mm-hmm. feel like the reason I'm not a big Star Trek person per se. Like I like Farscape. I like different oh, yeah. I like Firefly, other other space opera, but but Star Trek has been a little bit of a hard nut to crack for me. And Discovery, I just want to watch it all the time. And I feel like part of the reason is it's still gritty. It's still hopeful. There's that mix of the two. But also, yeah. I just like knowing that the future is still going to be there. <laughs> oh, I know what you mean. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yep. And that we're working toward, you know, peace and stuff. So I think that having a, a higher level of creativity, especially for science fiction right now, I think that totally makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, it does for me. I know my reading has been really varied. Well, Jason and I have been trading off um, recommendations to one another, too. So that that has been really awesome. And I've been looking back through books that I have had that were on the shelf that I'm like, oh, my gosh, that has been years. And sometimes I promise people reviews. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I can't believe that. Yeah, so I did like, I think last week I did 12 reviews on Amazon. Yes, because I'm just like flying through. Good. Um, the books right now yeah they've been awesome i had an experience like you kathleen with children of ruin mm. um, it is like a hard sf probably still dr al wenland would classify it as space opera because he likes the hard <laughs> sf things yeah. but i love children of time now these are 600 page books like yeah. these are gigantic adrian tchaikovsky is the author carrie's reading one of his fantasy mm. novels in fact yeah. right? is it super long too no, it's like 350 oh. pages. Oh. Oh, interesting. It's huh? Very normal length. <laughs> normal length, yeah. <laughs> well, these, like, I get so much hope from them, and they're super far future. Like, we're talking even much further future than, you know, Ambassador. And you're talking about situations that are not, that are sublime in the realm of human understanding as mm. far as. Again, I do not like the spoilers, as you guys know, yeah. so I don't want to give any spoilers with it. But they, I just love them so much because, like you said, Kathleen, it gave me some kind of hope for humanity yeah. that, like, man, that, like you said, that there will be a future and that look at science is great again mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, so, yeah, I've really been clinging to a lot of those things as of late. And I've been reading a lot more fantasy than what I normally do. So oh. that that has been kind of fun. Yeah, you guys are leaning more towards sci-fi. And I don't know if it's just because of what I have on my shelf. But I was like, now is the time to get through all of these really thick fantasy books that I haven't read yet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like maybe it has a little bit to do with why I like fantasy in general, which is that it is a very good avenue for escape, even though if it's not about the future but i don't know i think heidi has seen dark matter yes yeah love dark matter Mm -hmm. yeah i love it too and like just this past week i was like i'm gonna go watch that again (laughs) i know there should have been a lot more seasons of dark matter than what there was there's always people like trying to get more dark matter back so yep yeah i've never seen that i i've that's another one that i've meant to and i just haven't so yeah it's awesome it's awesome and if i don't know if either of you watch the expansion no. It took me three times, Jason and I both three times, to get through the first episode of The Expanse and then even into the second episode. But then after that, I was so hooked. Now, I have not read the books. I started to read actually the first one to see if, like, the dialogue, if they actually use dialect and so forth. And they do. And it's, like, really, really awesome. But I, like, totally got into the concept, especially, like, high concept within the first series. Yeah. 
My husband has been reading those, and he enjoys them, but he hasn't watched the TV show yet. But yeah, they're huge, long books, and he's read them and digs them. So, yeah. Maybe, you know what, maybe I'll try the books. You might like the books better. Yeah. Yeah, that might get you, like, really into the culture of it all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if not, it's okay. (laughs) That's the thing, is that that, um, within speculative fiction of all types, I think there's Mm -hmm. enough in there to... To appeal to everyone in different ways. Yes. Well, thank you again for coming on and talking with us about this cool stuff. And so where can um, listeners who want to start reading your books, do you have a website? Do you have a place where they can start to like find your books or? Sure. If they're interested at HeidiRubyMiller.com, I have each of the books. I have the description. I have reviews. I have excerpts up. I have the reading and resource guides up, which includes some themes that uh, you can find within there, some things to think about while you're reading, and also some of my influences along with some recommended reading there as well. So yeah, it's all there and you can get the books from either Dogstar Books, which is part of Raw Dog Screaming Press, or you can get them at, right now you can get them online at <laughs> Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Or I see a lot of the indie stores are also now starting to do eBooks as yes, well. So yes. uh, you might check out to see which ones are carrying those or, you know, have them right now. Awesome. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed tonight. It was good catching up. That was so fun. We hope to have Heidi back in the future. Next time, we're going to talk about more great pop culture topics. We're actively working on securing some more fantastic guests for upcoming episodes. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And you can find me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If you'd rather email us, you can do that at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. <laughs> <laughs>